Hi there. I'm Jen Hale Christie, and you're listening to Preach Her. This podcast is designed around the reality that many of our churches are shrinking because we haven't created a place where everyone can belong. So if you're seeing that reality in your own church, or you've experienced that and left the church or never even went, this podcast is for you. Welcome. Have you heard about our Patreon community? It is an awesome way to join me and others in this good work, whether you want to support women preachers and make sure that this work continues, or if you want to actually partner with me and have direct input, like you want to have a 30 minute phone call with me every month, or you want to join the sermon prep team, or you want to come and visit my family um, in Portland and help produce an episode. There are opportunities for you to engage at whatever level feels good for you. And everyone who's in the community gets access to our monthly letter um, delivered to your inbox at the end of every month. So click the link in the show notes and let me know what you think. Shout out to Sheila and Steve who have recently joined the community. We are in season three, which means we are making our way through the book of Acts. I like to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Today we have a guest preacher and after the sermon, I encourage you to stick around and hear our conversation about life, ministry, and hope for the church. Let's hear a word. Kara Christensen, and today we're going to talk about some strange turn of events in the early church in Acts. It's one that is a mix of rainbows and butterflies and great feels and just really cheering for the early church to some really, really dark moments. It's the story of the power of foundation and friendship. So let's dig in. The text that I'm going to be reading from today is Acts 4.32 through 5.11, and I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a man named Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's consent, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to us, but to God. Now, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and a great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. 
I don't know about y'all, but dang, as I listen to this text, it's one where I'm cheering and I'm hopeful and my heart is saying, cool, the early church, they were buddies. But it also really quickly dips down into the depths of the despair. What just happened? This text kind of leaves me with a chill. It's that same chill, that same, oh, snap, feeling that I get when I read the Grimm Brothers fables. You know, the guys who wrote the morbid, dark fairy tales to basically scare kids into being good for their parents? I feel this text could so easily be some sort of unpublished story from their books. I mean, you've met Hansel and Gretel, where I'm pretty sure the moral of the story is don't leave a trail of breadcrumbs behind, or lose your way in the woods, or enter into a house made of candy. I don't care how good that candy looks. It's stories like this and the one in Acts that make me go, what just happened. So if it's not a Grimm's fable, what is actually happening in this text? I'm going to spend some time discussing the theological and the social aspects of this section in hopes to shed some light on it. But as we explore this, you have to know this. This is my disclaimer. I won't pretend I'm going to wrap this up in a nice bow. In fact, this text may still leave you with all the feels towards God, Peter, and the other disciples. I mean apostles. And that's okay. I'm not sure where you are on your God journey, so I'm simply going to give you some information about the early church in Acts, and you can put that in your back pocket, and you, my fellow traveler, can keep traveling as you continue to explore your walk in your faith, trust, and relationship with God. So before we get started, let me give you a very quick overview of Acts, just so you kind of have a recap of what what the main views are of some of this book. So what are some of the overview is, its central focus is the establishment of the church. Where we're going to also, where the whole book is exploring the community of people who follow Jesus. It's the story of Jesus leading his people by the Holy Spirit. And it's a sequel to Luke. It's the second volume, some might say, to the book of Luke. A lot of times people read along with Luke because it's the continuing presence of Jesus in the world through the Holy Spirit. Also, this book, the genre is general history. So basically, what's happening is it's recording the origin and the process of the church. And so like all good history books, you want to make the hero look so great and, and you want it to just be, there's a bias. But what is cool about this is there might be a bias, but for this particular text will show you the good, the bad, and the ugly of the formation, the early formation of the church. So let's first start about the community. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about this one heart, one soul business. So the book of Acts was also written by Luke, who was a physician, but he was also a Gentile. And this language, one heart, one soul, would have been really familiar to him as a Gentile living in the Greco-Roman times. One heart and one soul and everything they held in common was really common language and was really associated with many of the ideas that the early philosophers such as Aristotle, Cicero, Cicero, and Plutarch used as they wrote and philosophized. I don't think that's a word, but I just used it. When they talk about ideal friendship, So many of their ideas appealed not only to Luke, but they also appealed to many of the other New Testament writers. So for example, in Cicero's writings, he writes about friendship in in this way. He says, friendship consists in accord in all things, human and divine, conjoined with mutual goodwill and affection. No better things have been given to man by the immortal gods. And then we hear Plutarch's view, which is pretty much along the lines of what Cicero says. He says, in our friendships, consonants, and harmony, there must be no element unlike, uneven, or unequal, but all must be alike to engender agreement in words, counsels, opinions, and feelings. 
and it must, must be as if one soul were apportioned among two or more bodies. Sounds familiar, right? One heart, one soul. So early friendship traditions and social relationships, they included some of these things, according to the philosophers. Friendships, they, people had to be similar in thinking, feeling, or purpose evoked through commonplace or having the same mind. There was also this idea of relating to one another with frank speech, no flattery, but being able to tell the truth and being authentic to another person. Then there was this idea of the importance of being able to reciprocate mutual obligation. So this idea of helping one another and, and holding responsibility for that. And then it was the idea of consider, considerations of appropriate levels of, of affections between friends. They also talked about the need for mutual loyalty and trust. So mutual loyalty and trust were huge for friendship and in communities of friendships. Then they also talked about the possibility of disloyalty and the breaking of bonds of friendship, leading to reflections on the friendship between, between friends and its opposite, an enemy. This sort of friendship, as we see it, idolizes the unity of the church during this time. So these six, these about six different ideas really talk to us about what an ideal friendship looked like. And then Luke, the author of Acts, winds and weaves that into this first part of this Acts text of the importance of that one heart, one soul common in common property, right? So again, not only was one heart, one soul important to the writer to share about in the early church, but it was also important to note that during this time, all the believers shared property, or at least that was the hope, right, in this section. So this idea was not only familiar to the Gentiles and their friendship philosophy, but it was also familiar to the Jews of the time. If we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, part of the Torah, it says, There will, however, be no one in need among you, because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession to occupy. So this practice of sharing everything was a practice that was meant to be to be managed by the temple long before we see it happening in Acts. God had that idea and that plan before we see Luke writing about it in Acts. The community of believers, they came together, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were filled with one heart and one soul, and there was one man in particular who made a tremendous contribution that, that Luke mentions. And so after Luke paints us the picture portraying how the believers were during the formation of the early church and how they all lived in friendship as it relates to community, the author introduces Barnabas, also known as Joseph, but they call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. And he portrays him as an ideal believer who sold his property for the greater good. He sells his property and he brings all the money and he puts it at the apostles' feet. He was living like all the believers, being like-minded and of one heart. But you know, Barnabas doesn't just Venmo the money to Peter or put a check in the collection plate on Sunday. No, no. He goes to the apostles and lays the money at the apostles' feet. And so this is an important gesture that is happening in this, in this text. This gesture represents the authority that Barnabas believed God to have through the apostles. Essentially, what Barnabas was saying without saying it, he was saying, I believe in Jesus and his teachings, and I trust you, Peter and company, to steward this money to someone who is in need. But as with all great tales, there's always a plot twist. So we hear about Barnabas, and the one thing to note in the text in the next paragraph is Luke goes on and he uses a but, a sharp word of contrast, and he introduces Ananias and Sapphira. So this couple is what I would consider a foil to the son of encouragement. In fiction, a foil is a character who contrasts with another character, who is usually the protagonist, so the good guy, to highlight qualities of the other character. So here we have, on the one hand, Barnabas, who has sold his property 
and given all of his money to the apostles and laid it at, it, at, it, at their feet. And then on the other side, the foil, we have Ananias and Sapphira who sold their property but kept some of the proceeds and only laid part of it at the apostles' feet while making it seem like they had laid all of the money at their feet. So if laying something at an authority's feet means you are honoring God and trusting the apostles to be good stewards of handing out the money, what these two did was not only done in part trust and, and, and was for themselves, maybe even possibly to feel better about themselves or to look good in the community community. Either way, for whatever their motive was, whether it was they didn't have enough trust, they did it for themselves, they wanted to look better. Either way, they left the impression that they had given all the money to the Lord. And this makes this makes Peter angry and kind of question them. Peter even says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Making it seem to me as though Peter is saying, come on, man, we've talked about this time and time again. This isn't right. After all, the book of Acts is one of showing people how the early church was formed. So this was maybe a possibly an ongoing thing with Ananias and his wife, continuously not portraying the whole truth. And then as Peter continues to, to speak to, to Ananias in this conversation, he even says, look, guy, you sold your land and you didn't even need to give us the money, not even any of it. But you have, and you've lied to God and seen with Ananias. So Peter kind of gives him an out. He says, you didn't even need to do it. Like you, you could have sold your land and gone on your way and it would have been fine. But somehow you wanted to come across and pretend like you sold the land and then you gave it all to us. So that's the scene. That's with Ananias. So then the author gets specific. I don't really, I mean, you know, it's just really specific and says three hours later, Sephira, now she's entering on the scene. And as she enters the scene, she doesn't have any clue what's happening. Peter asks her about the price, but he knows what's going on. She doesn't. He kind of knows and he kind of asks her this question as if to give her another chance to be honest before God. But she lies. Peter's anger boils once again and accusing her of putting the spirit to the test and calls her a co-conspirator in this whole situation. And instead of money being placed at the feet of the apostles like Barnabas did, Sapphira, like Ananias, falls immediately at Peter's feet. The authority had been, made, been made known in front of the whole community. Y'all, I have issues with this passage. I don't know about you, but I always have. And it still gets to me even today as it did way back when in Bible study class. Like I still, I still think about this and ask all the whys. So here's some of the questions that I've always had about this passage. Why Ananias and Sapphira? Why not, let's say, Adam and Eve? Or, you know, Peter, the guy who denied Jesus, the guy who's standing as the authority to, in front of the couple when he's got to know what it's got to be like to be in their shoes, right? To lie, to deny. Remember I told y'all I don't come today to wrap this up in a nice bow. It's okay to struggle with this, this text. But here are some things I do want to point out um, and let you and the Holy Spirit work it out amongst yourselves. What I can say, like it or not, is God's character is consistent both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, even in this instance. It's a very similar story, this story of Ananias and Sapphira, to this story in jo uh, Joshua that appears. And so there's this story in Joshua where Joshua, he rises early in the morning and they've just defeated this huge band of army army and somebody has taken things that they were not supposed to take so joshua gets up early and he goes tribe by tribe and he's picking off the tribes and he's like nope not you nope not you nope not you 
he takes the tribe of Judah and he says, someone in here did something. Then he goes clan by clan. And then he goes family by family. And finally he founds the family where he feels like something was taken. And the guy's name is Achan. And in the text it says this, and Achan answered, it's true. I am the one who sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shiner and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. They now lie hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So when Joshua hears this, he sends his messengers and they run to the tent and they find all the things that, that Achan has said is there and they pull them out and then they, they bring them into to Joseph and the other, or Joshua and the other Israelites and they see it. And this is what happens. Joshua says, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord is bringing trouble on you today. And And what happened was all of Israel stoned him to death. They burned him with fire, cast stones on them, and raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, that place to this day is called the Valley of Acre. So there's a similar story of judgment and justice of, you know, testing the Lord. And that's, that appears in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's another thing to note that I always feel a lot of people say is God killed Ananias and God killed Sapphira. But if you read the text, it doesn't necessarily say that. It doesn't say that God kills them. It says that they fell down and died. And so part of me wonders if this could be a tangible metaphor for what sin is like. And here's what I mean by this. When we sin, we have chosen to separate ourselves from God. There is a barrier. So our sin is choosing to live a life that does not carry God's presence with it. There's a separation. Sin is the absence of God. And so I wonder if in this moment that is what God is doing because Ananias and Sapphira have sinned against him, his very being, that he cuts himself off and then the the depth or the what happens the consequence is just falling down dead immediately because there's the sin is the absence of God I don't know something to think about another thing is I know that throughout the years and throughout the history and all these things that this particular section of acts has been used for things like promoting socialism and communism and all of the, the like come together one community things and that's just not what it's about none of what Barnabas did, Ananias did, or Sapphira did, it wasn't mandatory. It was their choice to do what they wanted with their property and their money. Peter even says it to Ananias before he dies. You could have just taken, you could have sold it, taken your money and gone on your way. So it's not promoting anything. It's not even mandatory. Again, it's just idle. It's idealizing the, the philosophies of community and friendship that they would have known during the Greco-Roman time. Another thing to last, a couple other things to note is the, the repeated phrases of a great fear seized the whole church. We see this happen twice in this passage. So it could give, so what it does is it could give you the idea that the people were scared into believing God and, or maybe there's another way to look at it. The church was young and they didn't know what they were doing. Sometimes y'all fear can be a healthy thing, especially to something that is young and fragile because it helps set up boundaries and expectations. It's kind of that idea of like, you know, that very first time, at least for me, that first time when I stepped, I like saw an ant pile and my mom said, don't touch it. You're going to get hurt. But I did it anyway. And I had ants all over. Yeah. Now I'm fear. And that was a good thing. Or, you know, that first time that you're, you touch that burner on the oven or the stove, you know, you don't do it again. So you learned that first time. And so maybe that's what this part is. A great fear seized the whole church, not necessarily saying, hey, you, you were tricked or man into believing God, but that this is how the church learned. Different things would arise, and these were some of the, the guidelines that came up and what God and the apostles created. 
In closing, as the philosopher Seneca wrote, friendship creates a community of interest between us in everything. We have neither successes nor setbacks as individuals. Our lives have a common end. No one can lead a happy life if, if they think only of themselves and turn everything for their own purposes. Acts 4.32 through 5.11 gives us a history lesson on not only the early foundation of the church, but also what radical friendship looks like and should look like for those who profess to be a follower of Jesus. If taking care of the poor and needy was a part of the temple duties in the Torah, and if we are to be the aroma in Christ, then we are the new temple filled with the Holy Spirit, and we are called to be a community of people where other people can go to experience God's generous and radical giving, healing, and presence. This is who the early church strove to be, and this is who we should strive to be like. And now I want to pray for y'all. I pray that from God's glorious, unlimited resources, God will empower you with inner strength and through God's spirit. Then Christ will make God's, God home, God's home in your hearts as you trust in God. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, and how high, and how deep God's love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able, through God's mighty power, to work within us, to accomplish indefinitely more than we are mighty to ask. Thanks for listening. Hello, Kara Christensen, and welcome to the Preacher Podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for uh, for your sermon, for the time that you spent um, dwelling in the Word, and for um, the Word that emerged for your willingness to share that with us, with all of us. Really appreciate that. Um, Let's see. First, why don't you tell us um, a little bit about where you are, where you're from, what you're up to, who you are. Yeah, so um, I'm Kara Christensen, and um, I currently, uh, with my husband and my dog, we live in Dallas area. And I, um, my full-time job is I work at a nonprofit that works with women and at-risk youth who have been and who are at risk for being sexually exploited. So that's kind of, and so what I do there is I help with um, employment skills and um, help with curriculum, implementing curriculum to help women feel empowered to uh, find jobs. And that, that's my small piece of that. Um, other parts of my, my life, other gigs that I have, you would say, is I am um, launching a soul, uh, soul care ministry and leadership development um, ministry called The Roadstead Project. So that's in the works. And we've got a, a podcast that is up and running with that, as well as I'm on Facebook and Instagram with that. So that's kind of my side gig um, that I'm doing. Cool. Tell us the name of that one more time. It's called the Roadstead Project. Roadstead Project. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll um, I'll get that linked up in the show notes so we can all check it out. So you're in Dallas and you've got a full time gig with a nonprofit, mm-hmm. um, but you're also a preacher. Tell us about that. About what that journey's been like and and what opportunities uh, you currently have to preach. Yeah. So I mean, since I um, ever since I was maybe in. Um, 
high school, I had a female youth minister and um, my background tradition, that was something that was mind blowing at the time. And so as I got to know her and she mentored me, um, I just started um, seeing that I might have some gifts for um, teaching and preaching and actually really enjoyed that because I love um when I find a word or a sentence or something, I want to know more about that and what is the meaning and who is saying it and all those things. And so, um, growing up in that way and in high school, I had some really great opportunities. And then, um, I went to, um, Abilene Christian university and, um, decided to do my, um, get a tent making skill, I guess you would say. So I went into social work, um, but still had a, a heart for preaching and teaching and being in the word, um, and just knowing more about it and knowing about the character of God. And so throughout, so I did my bachelor's there and did my master's there. And then I also got my master's in Christian ministry there. And, um, I always kind of joke with myself of like that degree was for funsies, you know, <laughs> I'm paying for it, but it was for funsies, you know, cause I, <laughs> I learned how to dig into the word and just how to really, what, you know, just more about my faith and it really helped me learn more. Um, just really grow deeper in that. And just my love for teaching grew that much more. Um, and so now I'm, yeah, that's another one of my, um, things that I do is when asked, I will, um, preach or teach at retreats for people or, um, also at my church, we do a rotation. And so every, every so often I will step in and do there, which is really great. Um, it's a great community of being able to, to preach in a way that is, um, like teaching style where, you know, I can ask a question and we all have a discussion. So it's like a round table, um, which is great because everybody gives their feedback in that sense. So, so yeah, so that's kind of, and you know, just wherever I can with the pot, my, my podcast and all that, that's, will just help and uh, spur on those preaching and teaching moments. So cool. That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing um, yeah. a little more about your journey so we can all know you a bit more. Mm -hmm. um, I have a couple questions about your sermon or, you know, observations and, and questions, and then I'll just open it up if you, you know, anything else that you want to share. Okay. Um, so you made this interesting point about, um, about how the story in Acts um, of the early church, in particular, uh, you know, about the people who um, who sold what was needed to, to to give to other people who had need, and that that's not a call for socialism. It's not that it's not a commandment. It's not um, it's not a justification for like one particular way to structure a community or or a, or a call to how we should live. Um, as far as like, it, it's not a, there's not a mandate for people. Yeah. To do things. Right. That was so interesting um, because I've certainly heard it that way. And right. I think a lot of us kind of carry the guilt of that, like mm -hmm. that we shouldn't have things um, because there are other people who have needs. And if we were real true Christians, if we were really being the early church, we would all sell what we have and make sure that, you know, there are no needs out there. Um, right. And so I thought that was just a really interesting point. And I wondered, like, did that just come to you um, in this sermon or is that something that's been working on you for a while? No, you know, like, so when, um, when you gave me this, this verse, I was like, man, it's like, I, I feel like I always get these like really hard texts, <laughs> like when I'm initiated into like these new, like my first time preaching at my church was like Lamentations chapter two and three. And I was like, oh man. So like, I was like, okay, so I've read this, you know, and I was like, oh, okay, here we go. And so I think this, this time around, like I, yeah, I always get hung up on like, I got to share things, got to share things, got to share things. And but this time around when I was doing through commentaries and different people's, you know, just interpretations of different texts, like the part that struck 
um, that really stood out to me this time was um, Peter was like, Hey man, like you, you didn't even have to give us this. Like you could have just took the money and been on your merry way and been a part of, you know, he, he been a part of the community. Cause nowhere does Peter say you, you could have given, you should have given this, you needed to give this and now you're out of the community, you know? Yeah. And so I was like, you know, I was like, that's an interesting point because yeah, I've heard it the same way that this text, this passage being used as this, like, we all just need to sh share and give along. And I think that that's, um, you know, and so uh, I don't know if it's like where my experience of like where I've worked in nonprofits or with populations or things like that, but I really do try to, when I look at the text, be like, is this going to fit? Does this fit for every, like for everyone and not just, yeah. um, the perspective that I have always been given as, I mean, let's be real, a white privileged woman, you know what I mean? And so like, does this, if what I'm about to say going to affect, affect people in, you know, and, and, and how and in what ways, cause I don't ever want to be contrite or, you know, gloss over things. Um, and so when I, so when I see those types of angles, I, I want to get, that helps me to have space of like, okay, like to breathe and not have to be this certain standard of Christian, I guess, of what's been said, but I, hopefully it gives other people like, okay, like this is okay to not have to be this this standard that has been preached at us maybe for so long. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. <laughs> those examples of like um, whether a text is being prescriptive or descriptive right. and mm -hmm. we, you know, in so many instances as a church, we've wanted to say, no, what this says right here, this is prescriptive. It's prescribing a way of life or a way to order the church or to conduct services or whatever. When right. in fact, it's just describing one context, one situation. It's not prescribing something for all time that, you know, how it should forevermore be. Yeah. And the part about the text that this time was super interesting to me was the fact that like the you know, that Luke is right. Like all of Acts, he's writing, he's basically highlighting like, Hey, here's, here are aspects and characteristics of what the ideal church community should look like. And in this particular passage, it was like friendship, you know, and what are the ideals and philosophies about friendship that the church um, should have, you know, and it's that idea of it is, it's being, it is being generous. Um, it's not like a forced thing. You know what I mean? There's, yeah. it's not like a, you're forced or you're out, but it is, there is an element of generosity that equals sacrifice that equals a bond of trust. Yeah. Um, you know, so. And that honesty was even more important, you know? Yeah, exactly. Generosity, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, exactly. And even like the Greek philosophers were like, honesty, blunt talking. Those are some top five things of friendship in our philosophy thing. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Well, um, you also mentioned um, the healthy fear, um, which I thought was interesting, and and you called out the um, that you know that the the text doesn't actually say that God killed them, which this is this is one of those passages that's always been kind of troubling to me. There are several like it, you know, where right. it looks like or has been interpreted as if to say that God killed somebody or right. God told somebody to kill some, and like whoa, those are really troubling. Um, but I thought that was a really interesting point to note that like, actually the text doesn't say that, like, right. Is there another way to hear this? Right. Yeah. And I mean, and that was kind of, um, man, it is just, it is so good for me to get these challenging texts because like I, it helps me to refresh and really look closely at it. Right. Cause like, as I was studying, I was like, yeah, I think my whole life I've been told that God killed these people and like put, and I was like, wait a minute, you know? And so that's sort of like, when I do text, I'm like, how was I 
influence to read this and what is actually being said. And then what, and so then what kind of makes it, I don't know how people want to like, people can, are going to still struggle with this because they just are, I think, but there are other, like I alluded to the passage in Joshua and, and so God's character is being shown and is, you know, it's the same, <laughs> like it's consistent, I guess, is what I'm trying to say in, yeah. in that, in that Joshua passage, all the way through this Acts passage. Um, so I just, I find that, I don't know if that can be comforting for some people. It might still piss people off. Sorry for my, you know, but you know, yeah. it might, I, I don't know what it's going to do, but it isn't to know, like we can hold, like, I think, um, I, I really, this, this Western idea of Christianity, we either hold one or the other. And I think that this passage in Acts particularly can help challenge us to like hold both like God's um, grace and, and goodness and mercy and God's like, he really, he really has a strong sovereignty of what happens and how he wants church to be and his community and to be, you know, so. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I, th those are the questions that I have. Um, and I just wondered if there's anything else, I mean, you've shared with us your heart and with, you know, how this, how this sermon has been working on you and has been, um, really influenced by ways, other ways that God's been working on you over the years. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you want to share with us before we go? Um, I mean, yeah, I think it's just this idea of, um, whenever we read text, just, you know, take time to read it and understand that there is cultural and social things that are happening and, um, to just kind of learn about the text and read it slowly and, and all that. Other than that, yeah. thank you so much for this opportunity. It was so much fun oh, I'm so uh, to do it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I gave you a hard text. I didn't mean to do it. No, <laughs> it's no, it's just, I'm like, yep. Just, it's initiation, you know, that's just how we look at it. It's good. It's so good. Cool. Well, I, I, like, will, a, I like a good challenge. Good. Well, I will, I'll see you in the Facebook group and maybe when we have our next conference, we'll meet in person. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. Thanks, Kara. All right. Bye, Jen. Bye. If today you find yourself on the outside without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you're always welcome in God's community. If you are one who wears the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise known as a faith leader, may you extend God's yes to those you might have said no to in the past. May you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. Let's build bigger tables together. If something in you was stirred today, reach out. Hearing from you really does help to shape the future of this podcast. You'll have the greatest impact and opportunities for engagement by joining our Patreon community by clicking that Become a Patron button on our page, patreon.com slash jenhalechristie. And I would love for you to connect with me on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook at jenhalechristie. Lastly, you would really help others to connect with this work if you would subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time.